This is from the Babylonian Talmud. The phrase says in Hebrew, Whoever comes to kill you, rise up and kill him first. Johnny Gould's Jewish State. What drives the state of Israel's instinct for survival? How do those instincts express themselves? Are threats against Israel more existential than faced by other nations? This episode, perhaps more than any other in the series so far, examines the psyche of the Jewish state. What happened when a stateless people, victims of genocide, learnt they needed to kill in order to survive? Mayor Dagan, one of the legendary Mossad chiefs, hanged on the wall of his offices, I would say. Since he was a lieutenant commander, he had a black and white photograph, which he took with him everywhere. And in that photograph, you can easily see and understand the, the scene where a Jewish Haredi a man is kneeling his hands in the air with his eyes gleaming with terror and the staff officers put, pointing their gun at him and he says to everybody coming to his office you see this guy in the, the picture this is my grandfather Dov Ehrlich in the uh, ghetto of Lokov in Poland in 1942 just second before those bastards from Gestapo shoot him to death and he says we are here, I am here as chief of Mossad and the Mossad, the gatekeepers, the custodians on the wall. We are here to make sure that two things will never happen again. Jews will not kneel, there will not be a second Holocaust. Now this mindset is inherent to everyone serving in the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF and the intelligence community, that it's up to them Our guest is Ronen Bergman, author of the best-selling book, Rise and Kill First. It's a title which required a lot of ruminating over. And then again, so did writing, editing and publishing the book itself. Ronen thought it would take about a year, and in the end it took six, and then a further couple of years to edit and publish. Through interviewing a thousand different people, the phrase, rise and kill first, from the Babylonian Talmud, kept on coming up in conversation. A phrase seemingly inscribed in the mindset, even hearts, of many of Israel's defensive operators, underpinned by generational Jewish persecution. No other security service thinks quite like this. Rise and kill first is an account of targeted assassinations. Since World War II, Israel has assassinated more people than any other country in the Western world. That's a frank sentence from the start of the book. Rise and Kill First reveals the foundational thinking of Israel's security services and how they were forged in the Jewish struggle for self-determination. But for all the sudden, brutal decisions, this account remains a very humane one and mistakes are made too. The book's detail comes from a wealth of unclassified documents, a thousand interviewees, some quizzed multiple times by Ronen, 
plus documents forgotten which happened to be in the private possession of veterans who gave him them. They would have had their varying reasons to do that, to relay their preferred version of events, to shape history to suit themselves perhaps, and that required additional sourcing in order to scotch such revisionist attempts. None of the accounts are endorsed or verified by the Israeli defense establishment, which makes the reading still more fascinating. Rise and Kill First is a New York Times bestseller. It sold hundreds of thousands of copies. We call them suicide bombers in the West. Islamists don't. And we discuss the bombers, their psychometrics and social backgrounds with surprising findings. Ronen tells me why commanders of these bombings don't do the job themselves if one of their proposed bombers dropped out. And yes, since the book, Mohsin Fakhrizadeh was killed by remote control robot in Iran, according to Ronen Bergman. Remember the name, Fakhrizadeh, when they took all the CDs out of Iran. This is how Dr. Mohsin Fakhrizadeh, head of Project Ahmad, put it. Remember that name, Fakhrizadeh. This work is carried out by Sapan. That's an organization inside Iran's defense ministry. And you will not be surprised to hear that Sapand is led by the same person who led Project Ahmad, Dr. Fahri Zadeh. Iran has been quick to point the finger at America and Israel, suggesting that the countries want to inflame tensions before Donald Trump leaves the White House. And apparently a remote control machine gun killed Fakhrizadeh, but none of the security guards around him as he was going home on a Friday afternoon to his holiday home somewhere outside Tehran. True or false? The Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard who published the story made that um, public only after giving completely other versions that there is a firefight defending of the security details, defending Fakhrizadeh. That some of the perpetrators, the assassins, were killed. Some of them were caught. Some of them are inter interrogation cells of the Revolutionary Guard. And you can just imagine, you know, what, what that means. Some of them were completely, uh, or they, some of them are talking, cooperating. And all of that, after, of course, admitting that Fakhrizadeh, their main client, the one that they protected, was killed. After that, they came with the story that it was a robot. Not just a robot, but a robot that is commanded from Tel Aviv through satellite with biometric systems. And the whole of the Iranian blogosphere went just nuts, mocking the Revolutionary Guard because it was, you know, walking, I don't know if it works in English and Hebrew, they say they walk with uh, butter on their heads in yeah, the sun. that works. That yeah. works, yeah. Okay. So they said, well, they failed. So now they come up with this nonsense story about the robot, like a force majeure. What can you do against the robot? Not just a robot from a satellite. But in that case, and you know, they're not very famous, the revolutionary guard with telling the, telling the truth. They, they, you know, they say, <laughs> they, they said the, about the, the few times, they said that I am a Mossad assassin or Mossad the, uh, intelligence officer and uh, 
Yana, my wife, says that this is just an ample proof of how poor the Iranian intelligence is, because if they knew me, they would know that I have no navigation skills, I don't know how to drive, I don't know how to manage myself, and my orientation in space is very limited. The last thing Mossad would want is me as part of their crew. It was just, you know, assassination in Tehran would just go nowhere. <laughs> but in that specific case, they had it spot on. It was a robot. It was a robot because Mossad decided to use that uh, because any other possibility, any other scenario, any other MO uh, turned out to end with probable fire exchange between the security details, between four and seven cars full with security guards and a lot of weapon and the operatives. And, um, you know, something that you cannot predict how how will end. Um, and of course, all the military and the police coming through the firefight. So, so the, the, a strong chance that some of the perpetrators, some of the assassins are not going to get of their life. Now, if there's a one ironclad rule to all Mossad operations on enemy, on enemy territory is that you, you attribute the same kind of importance to the success of the mission, but also to the evacuation safely of all the, the agents. And once they realized this is not possible, the whole plan got stuck. Until someone came with the idea of a robot. Wow. And one day we will tell wow. the story of that someone. But robot, of course, completely uh, puts away the main problem of live people. But it creates many other problems. You know, the, the robot with all the, you know, the machine gun, the cameras, yes. the equipment to the... Uh, communication equipment to the satellite, the AI, the computers, the the uh, reserve computers, and the explosive—all of them weighs one ton. It needs to be completely disassembled, smuggled into like in tiny pieces into Iran, then reassembled, then recalibrate, recapture with the satellite, then put on a Zamir, that's a local brand of Nissan, uh, like a pickup, and then have enough intelligence to know. When Fakhri Zadeh and his convoys, his wife, are leaving his dacha by the, by the Caspian Sea, going to where they're going to spend the weekend, as you, as you mentioned, put the Zamiad in the right place after the last turn, and another hidden camera before that, in a U-turn. So there's a final, final identification that it's indeed Fakhri Zadeh sitting behind the wheel. And then the actual use of that. Now, the use of the robot sounds easy, so you have, you know, like in the movie, you have like uh, uh, the jackal, the movie The Jackal yeah. has something like that, but in the movie the the jackal is sitting, you know, like say a kilometer away from the scene. Still away, but a kilometer away. Here, the signal going from the camera attached to the robot, to the machine gun, going up to the satellite and down to Tel Aviv will take 0.8 seconds. Then, right. the sniper will take around between half and three quarters of a second, and then the signal will still need another 0.8 to go back. So, altogether, something like two and a half to three seconds gap, uh, during which the car, of course, progress. So, you need AI system to compensate for the gap. And it's, you know, it's just imagine how hard that is. And it took something like three bursts of fire 
to the sniper to uh, fulfill the mission. Now, of course, there's a whole controversy surrounding the question of is it a legal, moral, justified target to kill a person who did not kill anyone in his hand in his life? Of course. It's just for his knowledge. Because of his, not just his knowledge, but because of him being the chief of the weapon group trying to manufacture a nuclear bomb from Iran. But I'm leaving those moral and ethical and legal questions aside. At the end of the day, it was only Fakhrizadeh, not his wife and not his bodyguards that were not scratched. He was the only one killed. And, you know, I will leave that uh, as an open question. Was that effective? Was that legal? Was that moral? Did that make the world a better place? Ronin Bergman, welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you, Johnny. My honor. It's my pleasure to have you and congratulations on a best-selling, fascinating read because of its sheer detail. It reads like a thriller, but every line is factual. Uh, yes, and thank you. And uh, the, the factual part was, the, of course, the hardest. I always say, people tell me, uh, flatter me that I know how to write uh, and speak uh, and tell a narrative as if it's a, a thriller. And I say that you need to be an idiot not to tell those great stories <laughs> uh, in a good way because they're just great, great stories. Mm. Uh, but uh, to make sure that I'm reaching the optimum level of accuracy corroborating information from shadow world of sometimes shadowy people uh, and in any case people that are not easy to convince to be interviewed uh, this was a long long journey and as a journalist an investigative journalist here there are certain moments where the story cannot be corroborated there's no second source for some of the things that you are told how do you deal with that? So, no, um, look, most of the stories I'm telling do not end or do not happen in a narrative where the crucial parts are happening as a duel. It's not only Carla versus George Smiley. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, there were Carla and George Smiley, of course, but there was the whole uh, second directorate and MI6 um, behind them or around them. And, you, and those two declined to comment. Then you'll have a lot of other people. And the I would say that the difficulty sometimes is to have too many um, witnesses. You know, uh, one of the former Mossad chiefs told me, you know, he said, well, I don't understand. You take all those people and get the testimonies about something that happened five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I have operatives coming back from the operation reporting to me two days after and having different versions. Now, they are not lying, but it's like, you know, it's like Rashomon of Akira Kurosawa. People have different 
angles of and perspective and perception and and views and um and angles and, and position so they they tell a little bit of different story so when I had only one source that tells a story, then I flashed it out in the footnotes. They made sure that it's clear that it's only him, or that there are contradictions, because sometimes there are. There is, you know, there's an ongoing debate between historians per the evaluation of oral sources. I was uh, fortunate to write a, the history of an organization or intelligence community, the Israeli intelligence community, that did not declassify any of its documents. Those are just not out there. Not just basing the book on oral sources, and uh, the book is based on uh, 1,000 interviewees. Some of them I had to interview a few, few times. But also, if someone looks at the uh, footnotes, uh, she or he will be able to see there's massive use of um, documents. And those documents, which I was fortunate to use, um, some of, uh, let's say, were forgotten in the private possession of veterans before they left and uh, were given to me by them. And so that, the 1,000 interviews, the existing published reports, the um, not published before thousands of documents, I think gives an ability to get as close as possible to the truth. Some of them I had to interview a few times. So in terms of actual meetings, the number is much higher. Thousands of interview sessions... Mm -hmm. Tens of thousands of pages, maybe even more. Millions of words of transcripts. <laughs> a book that you hoped would take a year, it took you six. It took six to write, research, <laughs> and then two more years to edit. So eight years. We started the initial conversation with Random House. took place in April 2010. The book was published on January 27, 2018. Let's go with the title now, because you had years to think about it, and you've come up with a wonderful title, Rise and Kill First. Why that title? Where does it come from? So the first idea was almost the obvious, to call it License to Kill. But then we searched Amazon, and it turns out that there are 64 other books that are using License to Kill as <laughs> a title, or part of the title. So It's a bit of a James Bond thing as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and it's... And so we decided that's, that's not going to work. Then we, there was an, another idea, my idea, awful idea, to call that the art of assassinations, like the art of war of Sun Tzu, which sounds like a coaching Zen book, which nobody would read. <laughs> so that was, uh, this was taken off. And then one person who was privy to actually... Uh, read uh, the millions of words and the thousands of transcripts. He said, "You know, Ronnie, there's a one, there's one sentence that many of your different interviewees keep on quoting. And this is from the Babylonian Talmud. A phrase says, whoever comes to kill you, rise up and kill him first.' In Hebrew, 'Akam lo gecha.' 
Hashkem Leorgo, whoever comes to kill you, rise up and kill him first. And this, when suggested, suddenly everybody around, you know, people who uh, handled the book, everybody supported that. In spite of the fact that for Israelis, when you say this phrase in Hebrew to Israelis, everybody would understand. And I'll take, get to the meaning in a, in a minute, but but for, for foreigners, it's not. It doesn't say anything, but it catches. And we, because the sentence itself is too long, we just kept the second part, rise and kill first. Which those different interviews, they quoted that, not in order to impress me or the readers with their knowledge of the Talmud, but because they wanted to convey, I think, their mindset when participating, ordering, planning, executing those highly risk operations way beyond enemy lines, um, some of them very controversial, taking the most aggressive means, but all of them were done with this sentence in the background. Which basically says that if you are under threat of being killed, if your country is under threat of being extinct, then you rise up and kill first. Now this mindset is different than I think any mindset of any intel or almost any intelligence service and any defense forces. Now of course defense forces are, are there to defend, of course, but when the memory of the past correlates with the present nemesis, the present enemies, challenging the existence of the state, or at least seen by the Jews in Israel as threatening a second annihilation, then you are left with one choice. Rise and kill first. A very Jewish perspective on self-defense. And the first line sets out the tone, a blunt statement. Since World War II, Israel has assassinated more people than any other country in the Western world, which sums up the mentality that you're talking about. The Mossad had to come from somewhere. So you go into the origins of those agencies in various Zionist militias and early forms of the IDF. As you put it, guerrillas, assassins, terrorists were at the heart of the new Jewish state's army and intelligence community. Yeah. It's a combination. You know, Mayor Dagan, the, one of the legendary Mossad chief who died of cancer in 2016 and led the organization during most of the previous decade, hanged on the wall of his offices, I would say, since he was a lieutenant commander in the tent. He had black and white photograph, which he took with him everywhere. Ended up at the wall at, of the Mossad chief in Mossad headquarters north to Tel Aviv. And in that photograph, you can easily see and understand the, the scene where a Jewish Haredi a man is kneeling on his, uh, or standing on his knees, his hands in the air with his eyes cleaning with terror and Gestapo officers po pointing their gun at him and he says to everybody coming to his office uh, his people but also 
counterparts from other intelligence organizations. I heard the story from, not just from him, but not just from people in Mossad, but also from people who came to see him, chiefs of the CIA and the NSA. He said, you see this guy in the, fi- the picture? This is my grandfather. Dov Ehrlich in the uh, ghetto of Lokov in Poland in 1942, just seconds before those bastards from Gestapo shoot him to death. And he says, we are here, I am here as chief of Mossad and the Mossad, the gatekeepers, the custodians on the wall, we are here to make sure that two things will never happen again. Jews will not kneel. There will not be a second Holocaust. Now, this mindset is inherent to everyone serving in the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, and the intelligence community, that it's up to them to secure the sole existence of the state of the Jews. And that changes everything. And indeed, Maya Degan was born to Jewish refugees on an icy floor of a train heading from the Ukraine to Poland at the end of World War II. And indeed, one of their agents, Nehemia Mary, cleverly survived the Einsatzgruppen killing squads at just 12 years old and climbed out of a blood-soaked pit of murdered people, many others. There's no other people that have this grounding in self-defense that has made Shin Bet and what the Mossad is today. Yeah, I have a friend, uh, very famous uh, international uh, renowned journalist, says, you know, Ronan, and he covers intelligence services and uh, national security in his country. He said, you know, sometimes I'm jealous because in your country, the shit really happens. Because those intelligence services and, and military and, and, and uh, defense forces were created during war and carved and established um, under fire. And they were being tested and in war situation since day one. Now, the IDF has quiet years, or, of course, years that it does not need to engage in all-out war. But the intelligence services are in all-out war all the time because it's up to them to do basically two main things. One is to bring the necessary information from the enemy country or organization. And second, which is very unique to Israeli intelligence services, is not just to bring the information... If you Google, if you go CIA.gov and see what are the main targets of the CIA, the the American Central Intelligence Agency, you'll see that the main goal is to bring information that would help the decision-making process of the leaders of the United States, which is quite a heavy one by itself. But for Israeli intelligence, where this, this is only the beginning a success, what, what will be seen as a great success by the CIA is only the beginning of the second task of Israeli intelligence, which is to uh, engage and prevent enemy plans against Israel. So to take the information, the intelligence collected from enemy territory and translate that into operation, sabotage, cyber, um, bombing, explosions, and at the peak of that, targeted killings.
the best guests and their most heartfelt views, a relay of their missions to a worldwide audience. 100 episodes along, and I'm proud that it's fast become the podcast of record. This is coverage of the Jewish and Israeli worlds that just doesn't get properly aired in mass media, and I'm not ashamed to ask for your help. A one-off donation is always gratefully received to support my efforts, but a monthly donation really gets our service off the ground. Your donation can also be made with gift aid, and it's so easy to do, just click on this, donorbox.org slash JG Podcast. That's donorbox.org slash JG Podcast. Are you in? Please share my series with your friends and thank you for listening. But Ronen, there is some very ugly reading in the book, even for the most ardent Israel supporter. Innocents, even children are killed in the pursuit of killing a terrorist. The purpose of Mossad is to uh, stop the wider killing of citizens. But unfortunately, tragically, innocent people do die in these missions. So first, uh, just not to put too much responsibility just on the shoulders of Mossad, this is, the book is about Mossad and the rest and of the Israeli yeah. uh, intelligence community and, uh, and IDF and the cooperation between, tight cooperation between the Shin Bet, so the Israeli equivalent to MI5, and the military gave birth to the most, I would say, massive, extensive machine of targeted killing ever created. And was that and 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 that was this uh, was launched or operated in the second intifada, uh, the one that broke out in uh, September of uh, two thousand, and lasted for four years, and I would say could be characterized better as the suicide bomber intifada. Because though in number, the suicide bomber bombers were just a fraction of the number of uh, violent operations or violent actions that took place, but they took severely heavy toll in casualties and injured people from uh, Israeli citizens. Um, only in uh, uh, March of 2002, some 150 civilians got killed from suicide bombers uh, in one month. Um, it turned out to be the smart bomb of the poor people, of the poor organization. You recruit someone, you need to indoctrinate that someone, but once you did, he doesn't need any, any, any uh, uh, exercise, no training, and the only thing he needs to do is to take the suicide bill, cross the line into Israel, abort the bus, uh, enter um, a shopping mall or uh, kindergarten, uh, and and switch the knob from off to on, exploding himself, himself and, and and all the all the people around him. Now, of course, thinking about that minute when someone turns that knob from off to to on, that's inconceivable. You don't understand the mindset that leading people. But facts remain; it happened, and Hamas boasted. Even British Muslims went over there. They tried, you know, I was present in when teams of, when that started, the, let's say, the export of suicide bombers from Iran to Lebanon, from Lebanon into, into Israel and the territories. I was present when teams of 
psychiatrists, social workers, psychologists that were working with the Shin Bet were dispatched to interview suicide bombers that did not succeed or the recruiters of suicide bombers in Israeli prisons. And they tried to create the profile of a typical average suicide bomber so they could, you know, like Minority Report, try to understand who could be recruited and maybe stop it before. Um, the result were that the average suicide bomber is a man, male, between 20 and 25, who has very basic education, if at all, sometimes complete an alphabet, uh, and did not left his village or city for most of, if not all, very easy, he's single, he doesn't have a family, and he's easy to manipulate, easy to indoctrinate. Someone a little bit dumb, they call and say in Arabic, Mrafal, Mrafal is sort of an idiot, that can be easily maneuvered. Now, that seems, you know, plausible, possible. But then it turns out that the suicide bombers worldwide do not work, they do not come from the corridors of society as the psychology, the psychological, psychiatric uh, uh, um, profile that the Shilbet created for them. Suddenly, it turns out that some of them are married. Some of them are older or younger. Some of them, you know that um, 16 of the 19 perpetrators of 9-11 had at least high, uh, high school education, if not more than that. So, and some of them were women, of course. Some of, like, suicide bombers in the territories were, were women. So it doesn't work. Profiling them just didn't work. But when we interviewed this was 1998, when we interviewed one of the main perpetrators of suicide bombers, a person who sent three suicide bombers to kill Israeli soldiers in January of 1995. And I asked him, because the third suicide bomber decided he's not going. He gave back the bomb to the guy that recruited him and said, maybe I'll become a shahid, but not today. And this guy shouted at him, you are Jesus, Moawin, so you are, you are a spy of the Israelis. It didn't help. He gave him the bomb and went away. So when I met with this guy, the commander of the cell, I said, why didn't you go? Meaning, you, you know that your plan is not going to be executed as you wanted. You have two suicide bombs, three bombs, why didn't you go with the third one? Making sure that the, the, the first two do as you, ask, as you ask them. And he says, I don't understand the question. Everyone has his job. There are those who needs to perform his tishad, which is to become a shaheed. Yes. Because in, in their perception, this is not committing suicide. We call it suicide bombers. But they are not committing a suicide. According, committing a suicide in in Islam, is forbidden, like in Judaism. This is not committing suicide. This is becoming a shahid because the state, the, the land of Israel is all um, supposed to be Muslim and every Israeli, including women and children, are soldiers in the enemy enemy's army. So he said that's the, those whose job is to become shahid and there are those like me who 
whose job is to recruit them and send them over. Now I thought to myself, well, well, what's this, this thing with everyone's job? And I realized he's afraid. Yeah. He was just afraid. And that was the solution. And I'm, I'm going back to your question. The killings of bystanders, the killings of the collateral damage yes. is horrible, cannot be, should not be justified. Everyone who is using the lethal weapon called targeted killing needs to know that he, he has accountability for killing civilians. At the, but we also need to bear in mind that those perpetrators were using uh, civilian neighborhoods not just, they were using their own family. You know, some of those most wanted Hamas leaders, their marriage life became the best possible since they became most wanted because they didn't leave their wives for one minute. And I don't want to be that commander of the war room in Shin Bet. It needs to make a call. There's a window of opportunity to kill the commander, the military commander of Hamas, who already was in, was involved or, or, or ordered the killing of 430 Israelis, one of the the main the main um, commanders of Hamas, codename Flag Barrier, and they tell him there's a window of opportunity. We know where he is, and he's very evasive, but he's there with his wife. Mm. So killing him using your window will probably most certainty, kill, uh, kill his wife. So, what do you do? And I don't. I'm not jealous. And anyone needs to make such a call. What happened? So they um, they decided to uh, kill him. They dropped one ton bomb on a building. Uh, in Gaza, his wife was with him. There were some people in Shinbet who warned that they believed that his daughter is with him. Some said she's not. She was. And she was killed. But much worse. It was not just Salah Shkade. That's the name of flag barrier and his wife and his kid. But because of lack, I would say, negligence of collection of intelligence from the area. They didn't know that the shats just about, just beside this, this, this building that was hit, are all populated and uh, 15 more people were killed, including five children, uh, eight children. Mm-hmm. This was horrible. Yeah. It should not have been happening. And as you say, on page 19, which relates to this sort of tragedy, as Israel would learn repeatedly in future years, it is very hard to predict how history will proceed after someone is shot in the head. So someone beyond the targeted killing um, creates the potential for an intifada that targeted assassinations are very good short-term, but long-term they cause more misery, more heartache, more belligerence on the Palestinian side. Well, let me. this sentence, the sentence you just quoted, refers to a quote from the person who commanded the assassination of Khalil al-Wazir, who was the deputy, the military, uh, deputy for military issues of Yasser Arafat. Uh, 
he was killed by the IDF and Mossad in Tunis in April 1988. Mm-hmm. And when I interviewed Moshe Bogielon, later to become, he was the commander of Sayeret Matkal, the high elite reconnaissance uh, commando unit. Um, he was then their commander, then he became the chief of staff and the minister of defense. And when I interviewed him, he was minister of defense about that. He was talking about shooting Abu Jihad in the head, as he did. But the historical turns are not predicted, especially when you talk about leaders. When you kill leaders, you can expect that history would change. You just don't know where it will go. Yeah. You refer to the, to the weight of hatred, bloodshed, destruction, ashes of war, which are piled and will, lead, will or might lead to further revenge. Now, this is all true, but if the other side does not accept your existence and launch attack, then you might think this might be a good reaction. I don't, like, if, if we, uh, just taking, you know, resorting to a luxury of an example for somewhere else, the, the U.S. has used... The, the, the policy of targeted killing against Al-Qaeda in extensive pace, especially under President Barack Obama, leading, of course, to the assassination or the killing of Osama bin Laden. Now, did they, when killing uh, this uh, mega-terrorist or the other, or Osama bin Laden, did they think that this will increase the, the circle of blood? Did anyone? And I'm not talking about make, doing justice. It's not about doing justice. It's about the day after. Will this is this effective? Is this will will make the world a better place? I would say that one of the main principles. Little Hot spoke about that in in time, in his time. If you win a war, it is on your responsibility to to start a negotiation, to use the diplomatic. Path. And this is, I think, the, if, if there's a lesson from the book, one of the lessons is that, indeed, Israeli intelligence, I think, and, you know, we're sitting here in London, so I'm not, no, no disrespect to the Her Majesty's intelligence services, um, which, by the way, you know, Mossad are not very, uh, I would say, easy with compliments to others, especially <laughs> that are not Mossad. Uh, but they always, always have the highest respect to MI6. Always. And you know, Mossad are very famous in their ability to recruit human agents. But they always say, if there's someone better than us, it's MI6. That's great, because Israel is not afraid of acknowledging its shortcomings or failure and so therefore, by paying a compliment to another agency, learning from their own mistakes, and then moving on to achieve success by those moments. And those successes can be, I would say, luring to the wrong conclusion. And this is what I was aiming at at the end of the book. Though I try not to give my my views, you know, I'm distant. But... If there's, a, if there's a conclusion there, I think Israeli intelligence was or is excellent. One of the best, if not the best, intelligence communities in the world that is able to come with a solution to any challenge posed to him by the leaders of Israel. 
but the leaders, and I'm not talking about a specific leader in spite of your mind, the leaders throughout history took this to a wrong conclusion. They believe that at the tip of the fingers there's some kind of an exotic capability to dismantle, if not to destroy, any threat they order, the threat is dead. That's it. And they didn't realize that those, those challenges have, there's, a, there's some, some limit upon which you cannot use force with. You, can, you need to resort to other, um, other ways, other channels of, 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 of exchanging with, with, with the adversary. And when they thought that they can resort, they can, so, they can solve everything with ordering Mossad to explode this place or destroy that bunker or kill that um, I don't know, nuclear scientist, they did not take the risk of using talks, of using diplomacy, of using policy. This, I think, is a story of the story of the book, the story described in the book is a story of unbelievable, a series of unbelievable, mind-blowing tactical successes and a threat to a devastating strategic failure. The hallmarks of the people of Israel. I'm going to quote Genesis 32:28. Israel fights with God and man and yet prevails. I think that's a subtext to what your book is about. I think that it prevails, it wins against all odds. Amor Hayudi, Jewish man. And after prevailing, after winning, it needs to understand that it has a certain obligation and continue to build a new, as Shimon Peres a new, new Middle East with other means. And while you're on, did you catch these episodes of Johnny Gould's Jewish State? Press the subscribe button. Scroll back for Danny, the Mossad commander, and the extraordinary story of the Red Sea spies. Yeah, I wanted to tell you that because this is something I never, I, I think I, I never told anybody. Danny, this is very, very beautiful, and I, <laughs> this is really going to be uh, an extraordinary interview. And the inside story on the making of Fowder. It's a special unit, very special unit that actually Israel created in order to avoid mass casualties. You have to go inside a difficult and a crazy places in order to, to pick and to take just one terrorist instead of bombing a whole uh, neighborhood or something like that. So you risk, risk your life in order to do that. You have to be an amazing actor because you're going to be an undercover and you have to go inside territories with different language, different body language, different clothes, different smell, everything. You have to be an amazing actor and a very cool guy because there is a lot of things that happening around you and you have to avoid all the noises and just concentrate on your the thing that you've been sent to do. It's even more remarkable than something that Fowder could invent. And that is an example of... Uh, it's an impossible idea that uh, Doron...
can become a Mizrahi or become an Arab or become a, a Safadi or an Ashkenazi. It's impossible that he does all of those things because there's one little moment of Arab pronunciation that means that they know he's a spy. Nowadays, you know, Rafi Eitan, the guy who captured Eichmann, told me that in the old times it was so easy to forge passports that sometimes they forge passports of countries that do not exist. <laughs> um, uh, nowadays it's very Impossible, hard yeah. to create an alliance, to create a legend, a false identity that would hold more than, let's say, an hour, or that would hold vis-a-vis some serious authority or... Uh, enforcement agency that is really suspecting someone and is trying to look is he is he for real very very hard and there are many many different ways or, or, or uh, agencies are looking for different ways to solve that some of them successfully some of them not one 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 specific uh, uh, or one possible of course uh, possibility is drones or um, robots mm-hmm. but as we learn at the end of the day, and once more information would be published about what happened in Ukraine behind the scenes, we will see that at the end of the day, sometimes there is no replacement for human agent in the right place. And we end with that. Ronan Bergman, Rise and Kill First, eminent author, great thinker on these matters. Thank you very much for joining me at Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you, Johnny. Thanks so much. Never miss another Johnny Gould's Jewish State and be first to hear the next show by subscribing now.